Welcome to the Give Back Economy, a podcast about social innovation and social enterprise. Now with your host, Peter Miller. And today we're going to London, England to talk to Paul Maskell. And he works in a couple of very interesting areas. And we'll get into that in just a minute. So, Paul, let's talk about your education first. Where did you go to school? Uh, well, I went to school uh, from a university point of view. Uh, I went to the University of East Anglia. And oddly enough, uh, <laughs> funny enough, from an academic point of view, um, my degree was in international development. And then I then did a master's in conflict, uh, peace and security. So something entirely irrelevant. <laughs> well, to be fair, it's somewhat uh, somewhat relevant, but generally speaking, quite far removed from what I've actually ended up getting into uh, nigh on, what, 15 years later. But um, but yeah, it's still quite useful. Uh, and at the moment, I'm also doing a part-time PhD in the behavioral science behind online crime. So, yeah. Okay. So talk about your work experience in between I, the education experiences <laughs> and... and it's it's been a, a very roundabout way. Uh, so obviously at the moment I am uh, kind of a, a bit of a hybrid and a bit of an identity crisis. Is that I'm strategic fraud prevention lead, uh, strategic fraud prevention and behavioural lead for UK finance. So it's our trade association uh, for the financial industry over in the UK. Uh, I do a lot of stuff internationally in various guises, um, but I also work. Uh, with our new economic crime and cyber HQ with the City of London Police, which is essentially a uh, our national lead force for fraud and cyber. Um, so I'm kind of part and parcel. I'm kind of on both sides of the fence from law enforcement and, and financial, and I provide a bit of a conduit. But the way in which I kind of got here um, was was unusual, um, as, I, as I said. So even before I, uh, when I left university um, and did, uh, again, as I said, my master's in conflict, peace and security, I was in fact a wedding planner and an event uh, manager for, uh, for a hotel. <laughs> so, so... <laughs> So, yeah, I was there for about, what, eight years or something like that. So it was a very different change in vocation. Um, but I ended up, after my degrees, et cetera, because it was kind of mid, I think it was like circa 2008 when I, I left my university, and then 2009, 2010 when I left for my master's. Um, and it was kind of, again, the financial crisis. Uh, I went back and, and worked in the hotel for a bit. And it was there at that point where, kind of early 20s and going, you know what, this is not why I did my degrees, let's go for it. So I ended up um, working in a variety of different roles in our local law enforcement. So I am I actually live on the kind of east uh, eastern side of the UK uh, in, in, in Norfolk. So I work for Norfolk and Sabbery. Uh, I worked in a number of guises. I worked in intelligence. Uh, so probably about two or so years in intelligence as an intelligence support officer. Uh, I then ended up working in counterterrorism uh, in in various guises, especially around the kind of ISIS caliphate time uh, in relation to radicalization. Uh, everybody was finding terrorists under the bed sort of thing, sort of time, et cetera, in that sort of age. Um, and then, oddly enough, at that sort of time, uh, a lot of lot government, government funding for law enforcement changed in the UK in relation to cyber. So... Because I, by nature, and funny enough, with my experience of being in master ceremonies and events and things like that, I'm a presenter. Um, generally speaking, that's probably what I do the most 
uh, in my role and in, in my job and essentially then went into cyber and fraud and the whole principle around that role was very often around educating people in quite complex things in in various guises whether it be cyber from a technical security point of view to a fraud in relation to much more the kind of social psychology side um and ended up kind of going down this very what has essentially been nearly a nine-year rabbit hole in understanding the behavioral science behind online enabled crime so how is it that we are generally much more vulnerable to this sort of crime and this some sort of risk and that's a lot of my research around it so I ended up citing that in police. I then taught uh, digital media investigation for law enforcement uh, nationally uh, in the UK for just under a year. Uh, digital forensics, uh, kind of drone forensics, and a lot of these sorts of things, in which I uh, kind of uh, ended up kind of getting very, very briefly involved in what our company was involved in. But mainly, I did digital media investigation and some elements of cyber. But 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 that was quite quick, uh, quite a, a short term. Um, I then went into I was an independent. Uh, so I went as an independent consultant. Turns out I'm a terrible businessman and did really badly. <laughs> so uh, I tried to be independent for a bit. Um, realized that I, I didn't enjoy it particularly well. Uh, I didn't probably, to be fair, I probably didn't have the profile for it at the time to to make it as an independent. Um, and for me personally, I have a lot of respect for a lot of people who do it. But for me, it kind of took away a lot of the passion from what I wanted to do. Um, have I thought about it again recently? Probably, yeah. Uh, but at the time, probably I didn't do very well. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, I ended up then going into private security. So I was brought on by a private security organization in relation to physical and digital security for uh, things like critical national infrastructure, a number of uh, high-profile sites, uh, airports, all sorts of bits and bobs. And I did uh, kind of hybrid uh, CT slash or counterterrorism and digital consultancy for a number of those different aspects and a lot of tr and and still it was very much a kind of element of training in various guises uh, and then to be fair I was head of cyber and risk for that organization and then uh, I saw the role within uh, what is UK finance now um, and very often it was training the banks training law enforcement uh, training the larger kind of network and infrastructure that that supports the kind of counter fraud scape uh, and especially around cyber as well and i was like that's the job for me so so now i do a lot of the tv stuff i do a lot of documentaries bbc uh a lot any kind of news interviews radios podcasts as as, <laughs> as i'm here now um in various guises from different degrees um and have done that for the last three years so yeah, I take it a very, very different stance, but that's been the very roundabout journey in which I've gone here. <laughs> so where could uh, people see some of these documentaries? Uh, so some of your presentations? Yeah, so there's, there's a few bits. So most of, the, most of the presentations, although I do last count, I think I do 180 or so a year in various guises, and so there's some examples on YouTube, there's some examples out there in the wild, um, some of them are uh, BBC, Channel 5 over here, etc. Um, there's various bits and bobs that I've been kind of appearing on in various guises. But generally speaking, it's somebody talking about probably much more the social element or the trends in relation to a lot of social engineering. Uh, if anybody wants to talk about 
the impact on victims in these various guises. That's generally what I end up doing. Um, but because so much of my deliveries around the psychology of fraud and, and the psychology of online naval crime, they're often internal training. So there's not all that much footprint or external footprint in order to gain them as well. Um, so yeah, there's, so there's, there's stuff out there. Um, I'm probably going to be doing a lot more in this new role that I have now uh, in relation to uh, kind of almost being the pointy edge of the stick in a lot of that education. Um, but yeah, that's the plan. Okay, so YouTube for our listeners in North America probably yeah. would be the best. I know, I know trying to trying to access BBC iPlayer outside of the, uh, the UK is, is generally quite difficult. So yeah, 100%. Um, but, um, but yeah, I, I think there's, there's elements on YouTube. There's a few bits and bobs. There's uh, a few podcasts around Fordable uh, as well that I've, I've guessed, guested on as well. So. so YouTube, what would be the location? The location uh, from a YouTube point of view? Uh, I would say, yeah, just have a, have a look for my name. Um, there's a few bits for, again, much more the kind of the lower level education and the kind of the basics in relation to like Neighborhood Watch and stuff like that. Uh, there's also a presentation or a seminar I did with the University of Car Swansea, Cardiff, a, way, a Welsh one somewhere um, in which I did it. But as I said, a lot of my footprint is actually quite internal training bespoke to, for instance, some of the most major major banks. Um, I get, again, do a lot of the sessions with uh, like kind of uh, national law enforcement. And so some of that isn't necessarily recorded. Um, but you can get the gist of the, the footprint I have on YouTube and bits and bobs. So, What I'm surprised at is there's no book <laughs> and there's no professor. How come? No. No. So it, it's interesting because, again, for, for me, is that it's always been practitioner-based. Like, how does how does this make a difference? And although I am doing a part-time PhD at, at the same time, um, in relation to exploration, exploring this, but the the real reason I started was is, is I'd, I'd come from counterterrorism and I'd gone into cyber and fraud, and it was very interesting to me because for me I didn't have to tell people that terrorism was bad. I didn't have to convince organizations and people that terrorism was something to to be motivated to protect yourself against to avoid <laughs> or that it was generally a bad thing um in, in various guises but that's exactly what you end up having to do in in cyber and fraud and and, and by extension things like scams uh, and a lot of my work looks at that and the biggest question for me was well how is it that people assess risk like why is the why do they assess risk in one way and not the other? And what is the dividing line between cyber cyber and fraud when people don't assess the risk in the right way in the first place? And they're not generally motivated to to educate themselves. Businesses aren't always that educated unless there's some sort of uh, ISO standard or, or NEST standard, et cetera, that, that, that dictates them or some sort of sales aspect that dictates it. But there's no actual motivation to take it on board. People don't think they'll fall for it, for instance, when it comes to fraud and, and scams and manipulation. So this started me there on this, this very long rabbit hole of trying to understand what is it. And, and I talk a lot about abstract risk. And the more and more I go down this route is that because it's A, online enabled, B, because, um, again, there isn't a huge amount of emotional 
uh, uh, weight to the problem. Because if I say terrorism, everybody's got a he- an image in their head that represents the problem to them, like almost immediately. Um, and again, it's again the the statistical probability of it happening to you is quite low, but you're still motivated to know what to do in the event of, and you're still motivated to do the thing. And that goes for any sort of fear or risk, like for instance, air air travel. People are petrified of getting on a plane, but it's statistically much more likely to die horribly on the way to the airport than ever up in the air. But people don't get to the airport and go, oh, thank God that journey on is, is over now for the safer part of my journey. People people don't do that. But Unless when it, they fly on Boeing. <laughs> yeah, unless they fly on Boeing. That is a very good point, um, especially from a contextual point of view, yeah. Um, but But generally speaking, but when I say fraud... Most people don't really have an image in their head that represents the problem um, because it's, again, generally speaking, it's from a disembodied individual who has manipulated you. It's from an email. It's from a text message. It's from a phone call. Um, it's not a, an emotionally visceral image to represent the problem to you. And both uh, Kahneman and, and Sunstein talks about this whole impact of saying, well, this is about the what's called the availability heuristic, is that people assess risk based on the ease of which information comes to mind. Now, the problem is, if something doesn't come to your mind easily, i.e. most online-enabled crime and most online-enabled risk, then are you going to assess it as an issue? Probably not, not, not over and above and anything else. But also, are you then motivated to take on board the education the investment that's required in your business or whichever in order to do it in the first place. No, like one of the biggest issues we have in, especially in the UK um, and, and, and well, to be fair, it's also a global issue is it's trying to motivate people to be educate themselves, to protect themselves in the first place of a problem that they never believe that is a problem in the first place. <laughs> so, so you have this kind of dichotomy where, okay, well, if education is less effective in this way, because people aren't motivated because it's like, it's essentially like me saying, I want you to learn German, but I never want you to go to Germany or speak to a German person. Are you therefore motivated to learn the language? No. Um, so when it comes to this sort of stuff, that that then became the kind of pillar of a lot of my research, a lot of my work in relation to going, OK, well, what is it about this? So I then kind of explored in, what again, cognitive heuristics, the psychology, the behavioral science behind why is it and what? Uh, cognitive heuristics and mental shortcuts are handicapped or subverted in an online relationship or an online communication. And it turns out, loads. <laughs> so, so, yeah. Okay, so a couple of tips for our listeners. Uh, an individual and then a small business trying to protect themselves from cybersecurity. So from an individual point of view is that the thing is fraud and by extension, a lot of social engineering and cyber for an individual is that it's, it's an abstract problem. And most of the time you say, well, I wouldn't fall for it because I wouldn't be so stupid. Um, is that it's one of the only crime types that you say you fall for or you're duped or you're tricked or you're manipulated, etc. Now, I wouldn't turn around to you and say, I can't believe you fell for that burglary. Like, it's still potentially dramatic impact and all these sorts of things. It's a violation. And the more and more we explore around social engineering and fraud is it does come down to the fact that 
Every single person has been told something that they wanted to hear at probably the wrong time you should have heard it. Now that goes for whether you're distracted, etc. So it's nothing about being fallen for. It's actually the reality is that you've been directly or indirectly targeted by a criminal who is incredibly good at what they do in order to steal your data and all your money. It's not it's nothing to be ashamed of. It's it's again, it's unfortunately it's a very prevalent, easily and accessible crime for most people that that choose to endorse it. So it's about understanding that we as human beings, if you are a human being and you breathe, you are susceptible and vulnerable to fraud and social engineering in various guises. Because depending on the context, uh, depending on the flavor of scam, there is absolutely a flavor of scam for everybody. So it is so much more about your emotional mindfulness in the moment, because I can give you all of the education in the world, but I cannot make you any less emotional in the moment when somebody is trying to panic you or to excite you or to get you something like that. So it's very often most of the education around fraud and, and social engineering is it's being mindful of the process and not necessarily taking things at face value, no matter what the form of communication is. So. A, believing you're susceptible in the first place is something to admit. Um, There's nothing wrong to admit that. Uh, and then on top of that is very often is it's, it's about being mindful of those moments in those communications. From a business point of view is pretty much the same because businesses are made up of individuals. No matter how good your policy is, if your individuals aren't following it, um, then it doesn't matter. Um, again, you've got a wonderful document and a policy written, but it's, if it's not reinforced by your culture, if it's not reinforced by your management, and it's not reinforced by the rest of your organization, then it is essentially worthless. So from a business point of view, yes, it does come down to educating your, your staff, your people within your organization about what I've just literally said about the individual stuff. However, is that it is so much more about the culture um, in relation to fortifying that and actually taking it as a, a risk that needs to be addressed, no matter how big or small your organization is. Now, I know we've seen a lot of different changes in the last what, 10 years, nine, nine, 10 years, et cetera, even since I started in cyber fraud. There is generally a more systemic adoption for it. But when you go into the kind of SME, smaller businesses, smaller organizations, you just don't get the motivation. Uh, you don't necessarily because, well, we're too small to be attacked. I'm like, no, I, I, as a criminal, it, it doesn't matter. <laughs> like you are on the receiving end of an email. You're, if I send 100,000 emails out and I get a good five responses, it's a pretty good conversion rate for a day's work as me as a fraudster. So I don't care who you are as long as you're receiving it and you've got money to potentially give me. So so it doesn't really matter who you are, but actually the amount of information it is. So the culture in order to be motivated in the first place to take those actions, to train your staff as much as you possibly can, to make sure your policy infrastructure, et cetera, is robust and those changes are done um, in relation to checks and balances, audit, all these sorts of things, but also just making sure you're the low-hanging fruit in, in good cyber hygiene and digital hygiene in relation to it. But that's the problem, is that it's, it's fundamentally about the motivation to invest the time and or potentially the money in order to, to get it right in the first place. Um, so, yeah. So who's stronger, China or Russia? <laughs> I'm, I'm probably, that's well above my, my pay grade, but 
I think from a China Russia point of view is that if you're talking about cyber capability, if you're talking about that sort of uh, digital element, um, because I'm I'm no uh, I'm no <laughs> tactician or or, or defense analyst um, uh, in any way, shape, or form. Um, but strength is very subjective about that capability. Is that yes, is a threat to things like national infrastructure on both sides of the fence? Absolutely. Um, is a lot of that uh, cyber capability and that ability endorsed, then mixed in with, especially in Russia, you've got kind of the mixing with serious and organized crime, endorsed serious and organized crime and elements as, as well. Uh, so you've got a number of different factors that, again, it's it's a lot it's a more of a complicated, and this is an entirely different podcast on the basis of trying to explain the entire thing. Um, but yeah, I don't. I I couldn't probably tell you who is stronger from a capability point of view. But the thing is, they have dramatically different motivations. So, depending on where you want to go from it. Excellent. Okay, so one one last question: Are you considered an advocate for cyber security with the government? Yeah, I. I and corporations? Yes. So, uh, oh, well, I'm absolutely an advocate for, for cybersecurity. And, and the, th the thing is, for me, as essentially a flowery social scientist in the way people are motivated to take action and, and how our vulnerability is circumvented in a lot of online-enabled communication. Because for me, fraud, scams, cyber, disinformation, radicalization fake news, uh, all this sort of stuff are a symptom of a larger issue. Is that we, our relationship with technology is very subjective. It's purely based on a lot of our confirmation bias. We only read what we want to read. We only follow what we want to follow. And we only believe what we want to believe. So in a situation like this, is that you have a, a scenario where all of these abstract risks, all of these new breed of risks that we have over the last like 10, 20 years, is that although they have been around for thousands of years, from propaganda to mis disinformation to, to misinformation, the platform has made it a systemic issue in relation to you can be isolated and you can believe what you want to believe and you can believe any narrative you want to believe and you have no natural intervention to do it. So I am a huge, colossal advocate for looking at this in a broader light in relation to saying, well, yes, okay, from a fraud point of view, there's policy, there's different other elements, there's customer education, et cetera. But to me, all of this is the same thing. All boils down to our very subjective relationship with technology in the way we cannot necessarily verify who we talk to or what content we consume. And that is essentially... The, the broader concentrated version of it so 100% I am an advocate but I am 100% even more so an advocate to understand that we need to see this all in the same sort of uh, psychological light in relation to understanding the impact has AI made that easier or harder sorry has AI made that harder <laughs> or easier oh, AI. <laughs> um <laughs> The problem is, so I, pre I present on a number of different elements of AI. Now, I am no expert in AI. 
However, a lot of organizations have asked me to to present on AI and to talk about, well, what is what is the impact on behavioral science? What is the impact on, on ourselves? And I said, well, what's the difference between fraud and marketing? Like, I would argue that there isn't any difference between fraud and marketing, apart from the intention of the author. Like, from a cyber point of view, from a social engineering aspect and manipulation, there is also no difference between cyber and marketing when it comes to, I want to objectively make you make you make a decision that you'd objectively not want to do <laughs> against your organization or yourself. Um, also, in the face is, if I'm selling a product, I'm still trying to direct your traffic to a website, to, to a link, to something, but it depends on the intention of the author that makes the difference. So... From an AI point of view, every piece of technology that we have had has facilitated criminality in some ways. If it makes human beings' lives easier, then it's also going to make criminals' lives easier. But if I take a criminal and I go, I need a combination of capability, opportunity, pressure, and rationalization, i.e. the story in which I tell myself to justify the actions in which I'm taking, and technology, again reduces the need for all four of those criteria. I would argue in a lot of ways that AI essentially reduces the barrier to entry in a lot of ways, whether that be coding, whether that be the creation of malware, whether that be the creation of a semi-convincing phishing email or SMS text or something along those lines. Because what AI essentially, and especially like the chat GPT and natural language models and, and all these sorts of things do, is it improves the ability of me to communicate. And that's great. That's fantastic in a lot of different ways. It makes me more productive in a lot of ways. But criminals are business people. They are, they are going to work. They are doing exactly the same thing we're doing, but with a slightly more nefarious intention. So if it makes our lives easier in various guises, then inadvertently and obviously we'll do the same for them. Um, one big thing we've seen is a, a massive rise in, in social engineering in a number of countries, including Japan. So some of the stuff we've seen is that, generally speaking, trying to break down a language barrier with traditional translation tools was actually quite increasingly difficult. Because grammatically, if you get something wrong, it completely makes no sense to the end user. But utilizing AI, utilizing ChatGPT, if I'm not a native speaker to ever that language, does it make it easier for me? Does it make it more grammatically convincing? Does it make it uh, the barrier to entry for me to be able to convince you that you should give me your money, click on a link, transfer some funds, or give me your personal information? Does that make it easier? Yes. So, yeah. The only issue I, I would argue as well is that Will we see the big watershed moment? Because if AI is so saturated into everything we do, and it will eventually be in various guises, um, will we be? A will the victim of a fraud be able to go? Yes, that email I received was definitely AI written. Will we know? So it's the it's very often from a societal point of view, we are blurring the lines between what we can actually trust in any of the content in which we consume, and that that presents a much larger issue in relation to if I cannot trust anything I read or anything I do or anybody I talk to in various guises, unless there are methods in which I can make sure I verify that, then that's a different moment.